0: Listener production.
1: Okay, are you recording?
2: Howdy, you are listening to episode 147 of the Howie Games Part A, featuring a pioneer of Australian motorsport, Toby Price. But all eyes were on this man Price, and he finished in style, taking the Stage 10 win by over two minutes. So if you met Toby Price and didn't know what he was all about, I reckon you just think he's a good country dude. Relaxed, really relaxed, nice twang when he talks. Top shelf mullet, and I mean top shelf mullet, easygoing character. What you wouldn't realise is that Toby is a man that risks life and limb every time he goes to work. A bloke that's pushed himself beyond all sorts of limits. A man that has dealt with pain, fear and dramas galore. Trying to win one of the most brutal sporting events on the planet, the Dakar Rally. Recognized as the greatest rally raid in the world and one of the biggest
1: motorsports events on the planet, the Dakar is more than just a race and represents the ultimate human and sporting adventure. Taking place over a period of 10 to 15 days each year through several thousand kilometers of some of the most difficult, hostile and majestic terrain on the planet. The event brings together both amateur and professional competitors in a test of human endurance and spirit. It's man, machine and nature against each
2: other in an epic challenge where just getting across the finish line is a huge achievement. So that's the Dakar. If you're not really into it, it is a truly epic event. Google it. It'll blow your mind. Toby has crushed the Dakar and at times it's crushed him. But that's the Dakar.
0: So many lost and left behind one seemed to care those who should seems like they're blind pretending they're not there can't they see they hold the key
2: could make things better if they try oh my jaja tell me
1: why won't they open up their eyes
2: This all came about due to the superstar that is Laura Nimmo and Penguin Random House Australia who have published Toby's cracking new book called Endurance. It is out now. It is a ripping read that will leave you shaking your head at times. So get onto it. Endurance is the name of the book. Alrighty, here's the story of Toby Price OAM, the first Aussie to ever win Dakar and the first bloke I've ever met that wears Gucci thongs whilst sporting a mullet. Life goals right there, kids. Enjoy! So when you search, and then you find And know
1: just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be
2: revealed In King Selassie I. Come on children, tread with me We want to reach Mount Zion. Welcome to the Howie Games, a man I've been trying to track down for a while. We'll get to technically what we're doing in a minute, but this man is a star of Australian sport, multiple winner of the Dakar Rally, which is phenomenal in itself. Toby Price, welcome to the Howie Games. How are you, mate? How are you doing, mate?
1: All going good. So it's, uh, yeah, good to be back home in Australia and um, getting ready for what the year will bring now. So it's, uh,
2: yeah, good times. Now, for a man that fixes his motorbike in the middle of the desert, be fair to say you're not that technology flash. But I'm sitting here in a hotel room with my microphone sitting on a guitar case, an upturned bin, and a box of muesli. Um, how are you technically set up at your end? there you're all good. Yeah,
1: mate, I'm all set up really good. So I'm on a nice office desk there. But we might have to get you to bust that uh, guitar out a bit later, mate, and <laughs> no. uh, show us your uh,
2: skills. <laughs> I guarantee you that will not will not be happening. Now we were just saying before we fired up that you're in Yatla and the first thing I said to you because this is a spot I stop on surf trips and get those pies. How far are you from the pie factory? Mate, yeah, I'm uh, literally, if I look out my window
1: this direction, I can pretty much see the roof. So I'm in a very dangerous uh, <laughs> position being where I am here at the shop. So, um, yeah, sometimes there's a, a quick lunch dash over over the road and, um, yeah, all good to go. But we try and stick to the, uh, the the good way of eating and stuff like that. But it's... um. It- yeah, good spot, good place to be, and uh, have the workshop set up here, and yeah, basically be the home base really. So it's uh, always good coming back home to Australia.
2: Now, if if those pies sort of the wind is right, it's just wafting down past <laughs> the factory, and it sucks you in because oh, I'm a steak and bacon man from that part of the world. What 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 are you going for if you're weakened, oh, mate? There's a there's
1: one good pie there. I probably shouldn't admit it too much as so I eat them. Yeah, once every couple of weeks, but it's a chicken <laughs> mornay pie, so <laughs> mate, there that that's got me covered and I yeah, I'm comfortable <laughs> with that, so <laughs>
2: Hey, mate, congratulations on the book. It is endurance. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal read. People that bring out books, you know, I always read them and sometimes, I'll be honest with you, mate, I do quite a few of these, I skip through. Yours I read page by page because it got me right from the start, the way it started. What was the process like of writing a book? And and you've obviously got so much of your career to go, mate, but looking back on the ups and downs and and the victories and the defeats along the way, what was the process like for you on congratulations, a cracking read?
1: Mate, no, much appreciated. It was... um. Yeah, it was uh, definitely a, a different process. I'm sure my um, school teachers back in the day probably would think that uh, writing a book would be the last thing I'd ever do when I was pretty much failing school and um, just all I wanted to do was ride my bike. But, yeah, it was um, it was a process, like, for sure. It was um, We had a really good company, uh, Penguin, that offered this to us and brought it up and, um, yeah, it was a, a really good run for us. So we basically just spent a lot of time on the phone uh, with a ghost rider and... Um, yeah, telling the story of uh, Toby Price, I guess, and um, the, the highs and lows. And like I say, once when you're in the middle of it, at, um, you basically kind of forget about it. You're always looking towards the future. You never really look yeah. back. And uh, it was kind of cool to look back and reflect on what we've been through and all the cool events. And then you'd talk about one thing and you, it would lead to another story you'd forgot about and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, the book's got a fair bit in there. It covers a lot. And... Um, yeah, it was a, a good time. So hopefully, yeah, now that it's out to the public, mm. everyone enjoys reading uh, from, yeah, my social media stuff. Everyone's had a really good time reading the book and um, give me a double thumbs up and, uh, yeah, stoked they bought the purchase, had the purchase and, yeah, good time. So very, very stoked on it.
2: Well, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. It is called Endurance. It's it's interesting what you say because so many athletes in the prime of their career, which you are, there's no time to look back yeah. um, and dwell on your successes. But did it give you a chance to look back and and feel some enormous pride about what you've done in your sport and how you've taken the Australian public under your wing and, and now we all watch Dakar and we're like, how's Toby going? And now there's other Australians coming through?
1: Yeah, for sure. That's it. Like I... Growing up in a country town of Hilston, um, yeah, population that was so small it's not even really on the map. Yeah, it was pretty much of a wild dream to say that yeah, you're gonna go and compete all around the world and in one of the biggest off road um races of the world really. And um like I say, that process of like looking back and then um yeah, this was like the the period like when I'd injured my shoulder at Dakar. We uh we had yeah, basically six months really kind of free. Um with uh, just doing some sponsorship commitments but no events and racing. So um, the offer kind of came up at the right time. And like I say, I've still got a fair few blank pages to fill. But, mm. um, yeah, we just thought it was a good opportunity to do, I guess, maybe a part one to the book and uh, hopefully the rest of the year um, of racing bikes and um, everything else we're up to, we can we can do a part two to it when I'm uh, basically in that walking frame or, or a wheelchair and <laughs> racing uh, the old people to the biscuit tin at the um, <laughs> retirement village. So uh, <laughs> we'll, um, we'll see. But, no, it's cool. Like, it's a rad story. And like I say, yeah, you got to look back and reflect on it so much. And, yeah, you kind of forget about all them small little moments and, and things that change your life. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's cool to reflect on. So it, it, was a, it was a really good process and had great people involved with it. And, yeah, it just made it, made it super simple and easy to, to uh, publish a book. So it was a good time.
2: I am not taking on Toby Price in the race for the Ice Vovo or Monte Carlo (laughs) biscuit tin in in that particular home. I I always love, um, obviously I've got a fair background in motorsport and whenever I speak to motorcyclists and jockeys, a a lot of people don't understand what goes on. So before we go back to the small country town you're talking about, I just want people to get an understanding of the brutality of what it is you do. So it's a predictable question, but for those that are like, oh, what's the Paris daco? You know, he's on his motorbike. Just give me a brief rundown of what you have broken and done to your body over the years. Um, yeah. So basically I'm uh, 34 years
1: of age. I've got a tally of 30 broken bones. So kind of makes me sound like an average motorcycle rider. Um, <laughs> but um, Usually when we hit the ground, um, it's usually you don't break one bone, it's like multiple bones, but um, main ones really are, I broke three vertebrae in my neck, so pretty much about this this area here in my neck, uh, C6, 7 and T1, and um, so I'm now fused and got eight screws and three rods in my neck, and I just joke around now that my head's screwed on literally, and um, <laughs> have a bit of a laugh with it, I guess, and... Uh, but yeah, I've broke both left and right femurs. I've broke my left wrist six times. I broke my right wrist five times. I've broken scaphoid. Broken my shoulder. Broke my nose. Broke fingers. Broke ribs. Um, yeah, it just the, the tally keeps going up. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's a brutal sport. Like, and that's like I say, it's um, a sport that doesn't last forever. And uh, you get to about that age, probably yeah, 38 to 40. And um, yeah, it's kind of hard to keep up with the young guys that are coming through, but it's cool to see that the Dakar is now starting to get some really good traction and good momentum here in Australia and, and more people uh, from Australia are actually going to compete with uh, Molly Taylor and um, Daniel Sanders and um, yeah. Andrew Hulahan. So it's uh, really, really cool to see. So it's, it's starting to go in the right direction for us.
2: So that, that's a great platform and people are going, wow, how does he do that? Well, we'll get to how those things have happened over the years. But you mentioned a very small country town. Tell me exactly where where it is and where does the, the young Toby get on uh, something with two wheels or four wheels for the first time, mate?
1: Yeah, so um, I grew up close by a country town called Hilston, so it's about eight hours directly west of Sydney. Um Okay. So it's, yeah, a bit of a, a long old drive out in the middle of nowhere, but I grew up on 43,000 acres of land, which was basically um, uh, an area that was 60 kilometres outside of Hillston itself. And, um, yeah, I had a, the ultimate playground to ride a motorcycle and uh, wasn't really into horses to go and muster the sheep and cattle or anything like that. It was, it was all pretty much done on, uh, on motorcycles or in cars. So it was... Um, kind of like, yeah, where I, I got that bit of a rev head, um, petrol burning fumes and uh, things going for me and uh, went went from there. So basically just rode around on the property and then uh, we tried my first event at four years of age at Condoblin. At four? At four years of age, yep, <laughs> yep. So that was uh, the requirement age legal limit to um, go and race a motorcycle and uh, yeah, four years old basically. I'd, was still pretty much, uh, still like trying to keep on my feet and um, not trip over <laughs> anything, but I was riding a motorcycle and I was comfortable doing that. And uh, we won our first race there. And you
2: won as a four year
1: old, were you up against other four year olds? Yeah, yeah, other four and five year olds, yep. So, um,
2: and you smoked them, you took the checkered flag, took
1: the checkered flag, and uh, <laughs> yeah, actually, there was a funny story. Dad said that, um, in the race, like, yeah, I'd, I'd lapped around the field and came back into the group, like, so I was lapping, like, last place and second last place, and, yeah, I came in and said, said to Dad, how did I do? Did I do all right? Like, and Dad's like, oh, yeah, no, I think you finished, like, third last or something, so were, yeah, you done all right, so it's good, and it, <laughs> I, I didn't know, I just wanted to go and play with my little dirt bike in the dirt and probably eat a, uh, a, a pie as well and or a bacon egg roll and hang out and <laughs> chill with the kids, so it was... um yeah, it was like it was kind of blasé to me really and then went to a few other events and we won those as well and then it basically just snowballed and took off from there.
2: Do you remember your first major stack?
1: My first major stack was probably when I was about yeah, 8 9 years old, about 9 years old and uh I was on a farm and just basically we were chasing um so I actually used to go out and uh, muster up goats and then we'd sell them off and that was actually just way we would pay for our racing a bit for fuel and everything and store them up. A <laughs> truck would come around and grab all the goats and pay us for them, catching them and, yeah, I was going through the gra- long grass and um, I ended up hitting a cement block uh, in the oh. grass and, um, yeah, and then I broke my wrist and that was basically kind of like my first... Big injury and bit of a, a bit of a drama and being of sixty kilometres from town, it was a long old drive with a broken arm and to get to the hospital and then uh go from there. But as a young kid I was on a JR eighty uh, J R fifty and I hit a grater blade. One big one huge big machinery in the middle of a paddock and I decided to hit the grater blade on the thing. So it was that was another good one, I guess, I had as well. But it's uh yeah, it's part
2: of the sport. it, it is. I'm fascinated by it, mate, that um so many athletes can't do what they do without their support of their parents, whether it's driving them to training or giving them in, in motorsport, you know, giving them equipment they require. How did your mum and dad handle? Obviously, it's a country and, and it's, it's, um, you grow up around mechanical things and motorbikes and, and tractors, et cetera. But how did your mum and dad handle their fear of something happening to you, because as a parent, that is the worst thing that can happen. Obviously, you know, you see, you see a young bloke with a busted wrist, y- y- your natural instinct is to say you need to ease off here, mate.
1: Yeah, for sure. Like, um, I've definitely probably stressed my parents out enough that I've probably knocked <laughs> a few years off their life. Um, but yeah, like they they just know that I was it seemed like I was just pretty much born to ride a motorcycle, and um, I seemed to gel with the motorcycle. And like I say, when I first started riding it. I started riding a motorcycle at two and a half and I could probably nearly ride the bike better than what I could actually walk. So <laughs> they actually probably trusted me more on a motorcycle at the start than what I was on my two feet walking <laughs> around in the yard. So it was um, a bit of a strange one. But, yeah, as then the injuries started to come into play a little bit and you started adding more speed and things, yeah, broken bones, um, for sure it was quite stressful for uh, for Mum. Mum never liked to see their, their young boy or um, no. anything hurt. Dad's like, yeah, like he's always, like, always fully supported me and um, never had any issues with, yeah, if I decided to hang the helmet up and walk away, he was more than happy with it. So, yeah, having that support of it, like, that I wasn't going to be a failure if I walked away or if I, yeah, wanted to continue, that the full support was there. So, yeah, without my parents, mm-hmm. I, w- I wouldn't be sitting here right now and telling this story. So it's, uh, Financially was quite draining for them because, yeah, we were in the middle of Australia basically and, um, long way from any major events. So my mum and dad were always working two, maybe three jobs at a time to try and mm. afford and fund to go to events. And then I had really good support of Hilston people and they would chip in here and there where they could to, uh, get me to some national races that were so far away. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a big, big old program, that's for sure. So it was, um, not just, uh, yeah, ride a motorcycle and living the high life and going amazing. It was uh, a lot of hard work and dedication from, from my parents and Hilston itself and 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 myself. So it's it's a pretty cool thing to look back on.
2: Yeah, my word is again when I have motorsport people on. Um, I've asked this question to to Mark, where I asked it to to Robbie Madison, who. He's a whole nother kettle of fish. I'm sure you know Robbie well. <laughs> oh, I know Robbie um, quite well. Yeah, he's a wow. legend, but, yeah, he's yeah. definitely a wild man. <laughs> he's a wild man. So what have you learned over the years, Pricey, about fear and how to deal with fear, um, how to overcome fear? What does it mean to you, fear?
1: Yeah, look, honestly, like um, you, you do sit here and like you'd sit in the office and say, all right, I'm getting ready to go to an event and a race and you know the consequences and what can happen and what can come from it but I don't know it's like like I'm sure in like Mark Weber's point and uh, Robbie Madison's point like we're just somehow able to like flick a switch like as soon as you put that helmet on or, or your race suit or riding gear yeah you, you, your mind basically can just switch to another place and that's as soon as you get on the motorcycle or you get in the car or anything like that you're that is the last thing that's even on your mind. You basically just want to go out and perfect the lap or perfect the mm. jump or mm. find the the areas and places that I need to be with doing racing Dakar now and it's um, it, it really honestly isn't a thought. And then once you, yeah, cross the finish line, you get back to the bivouac at the end of the day, then you go, oh, geez, I hit that bump once and kind of went a little bit, like a bit further than I thought and was a bit uncomfortable and you don't really register it until after it all. It's like... When you're in that moment, it's just, yeah, you block all that stuff out and it's really hard. Like it's a mentality game to it. Um, you've got to be really mentally strong and a lot of things that, that can happen outside of your uh, your control mm. can really play into effect. But it's, yeah, we're, we're able to manage that and we uh, we we only we know what we can and can't control and that's how we, we approach um, going into events and everything so it's just full focus on what we need to do and and go from there. But for sure, it's uh, it's been sometimes after my broken neck, I thought that would have been the last little bit of a ride for us. But um, yeah, I don't know. I just love the sport that much that I was like, I know I still got unfinished business and I know I can still do more in the sport. And um, yeah, I just kind of put it at the back of my mind and said, yeah, I'm definitely getting back on a bike and, and we're going again. So it was just once your mind can tick on, grab onto something, then yeah, it, it's it's unbelievable
2: what the what's possible in the world. Then, it's a great description. I I, I want to get to Dakar because it's something that fascinates me, and I really want to get in depth about what's required. Uh, we had a conversation like this years ago. I think at Clipsal when you you just won for the first time, and we did it for Channel Ten, and it sticks in my mind. I want to talk about some of that stuff with you. But as you progress, what, what's the first? race you won where you got some money for it. It wasn't a trophy. What's the first race you won where there's where there's a cash prize?
1: Well, actually, the very first kind of cash prize for us, I've actually got it here in the office somewhere. I'm trying to find it. But okay. it was when I was, um, I was uh, racing a 60cc um, dirt bike and actually went to a dirt track event and... Um, the the club and uh, everything had ordered the trophies but they didn't show up on time so they didn't really have anything to give to the kids and that like when we were racing so it was basically a little, yeah, $20 trophy or whatever it is but you thought, yeah, you just won the world championship and happy days and, uh, yeah, so they actually decided, well, we need to give them something and it was actually then prize money so I got $25 and... um <laughs> That was my first bit of prop, but back then you weren't allowed to give children money as like as prize money because it was not really yeah. allowed. So I actually I framed the twenty five dollars and. Um, Basically uh yeah kept it it's in here in the office somewhere but I can't quite see it but it's uh How old would you've been? I would have been probably yeah, 7 years of age. 7 so, $25 yeah.
2: is a good payday. Yeah, at that was seven. a good
1: payday. I, that's what I was all I was thinking of how many bags of lollies I could buy at, at 7 <laughs> I, was, I was over the moon with it. So um <laughs> I actually yeah like I say I framed it and um bit of a joke now I'm probably going to make up a little bit of a a plaque underneath it hanging on the wall and then uh go, yeah, in case of emergency, break glass. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, just that was like the first payday for us really. But then after that, my very like main kind of contract was uh, when I signed with the Kawasaki race team in 2003 for the 2004 season. And, um, yeah, basically had a little bit of money coming in, which was I think at that time, uh, I think it was like $15,000 Australian really so um at that age at sixteen, I thought I'd made it and I was on top of the world and um, going in the right direction, so which we were for sure, but yeah, it's it's crazy to see where it's built from from there to where I am now, twenty odd years later. so it's uh, it's pretty cool.
2: And, and talking about that transition. Um, we're talking about money and sponsorship here. You've been, um, as Robbie was, as Mark was, you've been a long time, as Sally Fitzgibbons, a lot, quite a few athletes have been on the show, a long time um, uh, sponsored by Red Bull, um, which is cool. I, yeah, This is not a plug for Red Bull, but for an energy drink, what they do, like I love Formula One, you know, obviously got they, yep. got, they got four cars in that in two teams. The sports that I like is associated with Red Bull. What is it like as a bloke from the bush to have that Red Bull hat on your head and be a Red Bull athlete? Because there's something really cool about it. I don't want this. This is not a plug for Red Bull, but it's something that appeals to me that what what the brand represents in the sporting marketplace and what they have done for so many athletes like you that are in less high-profile sports. They've done
1: some very cool things. A hundred percent. Like, yeah, to say basically a a company that sells an energy drink, um, basically air yeah, for $6 or $7 at the, at the gas station. It, you're very, very smart marketing people and, um, yeah. and, and really done it the right way that basically once you become a, a Red Bull athlete, it's like you're, you're the only one that can really use those helmets. And it's like, you can't, you can't go out and buy a Red Bull helmet to go and go to the races and, and ride around. So Unlike the other brands, it's, um, yeah, like they're, they're just as big in the sport as well um, in other energy drinks and everything. But for what Red Bull's been able to do with it, it's a massive, massive company. And the people you get to meet in other like um, aspects of sport, whether it's from wingsuit to skydive to e-gaming to kayaking, road yeah. cycling, they're into absolutely everything. And it's like... To sit there and look at a, a Red Bull can and just go, geez, they—they're in the Formula One, like Formula One budgets are just through the roof, <laughs> yeah. and it's and it's kind of nearly majority of it's funded by Red Bull. It's um, it, it's yeah, super cool brand to be a part of, and like I say, they just basically can make your wildest dreams come true. Like for Robbie Madison, riding a motorcycle on a wave. I think, which was in Hawaii. Like, it's just... Yeah, ta- Tahiti. Champu, yeah, ta- yeah. Yeah, and um, basically that's just something that would never have been thought of and then no. Robbie's been able to just come up with the idea and Red Bull's like, let's go with it and let's jump on it and let's make it happen. It's like things like that, that, things that have never been done before, Red Bull is all for it. But like I said, there's no pressure from them to say you have to risk your life to get us content or anything. It's just you come up with the idea and if it's um, something we want to achieve with you, then we'll, we'll make it happen and we, we'll go with it. So it's a massive, massive brand and, um, yeah, like I say, like very, very super lucky to have them on board, but then, like, also there's been a lot of hard work along the way to, um, to, to
2: achieve that and get there. Back to Toby shortly. Next up on the show, an episode I cannot wait. I cannot wait for you all to hear it. It goes behind the scenes of Major League Baseball, how cutthroat it is, and it is brutal, how a season can include 160-plus games and how you can go, listen to this, how you can go from earning 1200 bucks a fortnight to $18 million a year, which is what Liam Hendricks earns. At this point, most of you will no doubt be saying, who is Liam Hendricks? Well, Liam is a bloke from Perth He's a pitcher, he plays in the major leagues, and yep, he is pulling over $18 million this year, more next year. His story is one truly out of the box, to
0: put it mildly. And then flew back to Florida to kind of wait and see and hope if I got picked up. Didn't get picked up, they told me, hey, look, you're going to go to Nashville, which is where our AAA team is, get right out of the year, um, and we'll see what happens. And so I went down there. I completely changed my mind. I actually got very, very lucky. Chrissy, my wife, had reached out to a tarot card reader. Her name's Ruby. A tarot card reader? Tarot card reader. Reached out to Ruby's readings. We got a couple readings from her. And it was a lot of, like, why is this, why is there so many, why is there such a negative light around you? Like, it was always, whenever you, I was expecting things. And if that thing didn't happen, I spiraled. Or I've like I never I expected the things like in a best case scenario, and if it didn't happen, I spiraled, and it was just one of those things where I I was constantly just beating myself over the head with this need to fill expectations. Where after talking with her, it just clicked in the fact of why do I need to expect anything? Huh. Why do I need to go out there and be like, oh well, this is meant to be hit. This is meant to be me right now. Why is it somebody else instead? I went down. I I was there, and it was all about if it happens, it happens, very much back to the Australian motto of like, yeah, if it is, it'll be what it will be. And that's uh, that's kind of the mentality I took and that completely changed the trajectory of my career. And as you said with the contract, it uh, it technically goes down as a three by 54, three year 54 million because of the option because they only count the guaranteed years and the guaranteed money.
2: See what I'm saying here? It is an amazing story. I'm telling you, please have a listen to it. Even if you've never watched 30 seconds of baseball in your life, It's an unbelievable story. You will have a new athlete to follow and to cheer for, as I do now in Loom. It's an episode I truly love. A quick one for you just before we get rolling again. Good news, there is still lots of Howie Games merch clogging up the garage, up for sale still, wind cheaters, T-shirts, and the whispering death caps that sold out are back in stock. So get involved at www.howiegames.com. Turn heads in your new threads. Let's get back to Toby. Well, well, let's get to the to the hard work. Um, we'll have to progress because we can't, as I say, I want to get to DACA. I don't want to waste too much of your time. I really want to get to what's involved. But you mentioned it a couple of times. So 2013, you broke your bones in your neck in the United States. What happened?
1: Yeah, look, honestly, I don't quite recall the crash. I was completely out to it. So I was in doing a national hair hair. Hare and Hound event um, in Palm, near Palm Springs in California. So it was, uh, I'd pretty much won all the Australian championships that I could here and I was looking to progress into chasing more world um, world races that I wanted to compete in and uh, being that, yeah, Baja uh, was one of them on a motorcycle, um, I went over and just was getting ready for actually the Baja 500 and um, the weekend before was a national Hare and Hound and I uh, I was like I'll oh, I'll go and do this event which was with Kurt Caselli and um basically just yeah just get my foot in the door there a little bit see if I understand the race see if I can perform well and then hopefully I'll be able to race that the next year as well as a a championship race and yeah I I was just going through this little bit all I remember was going through a paddock it was like um little mounds of dirt and grass and stuff everywhere and uh I think I must have hit like a, a hidden stone or a rock behind a bit of a, a grass mound or something. And mm-hmm. um, all I remember was a really hard thud. And um, and then basically waking up and coming to really around in the hospital in Palm Springs, California. And then uh, all then I could really tell him was like, hey, my, my neck feels like really weak. Like I, sh- I can sh- move my neck a little bit. And it's just, this doesn't feel like nothing's connected on my neck really and it's like I've just pulled all the muscles on my neck and really weak so then they basically took me in for a CT scan and everything and then uh, they wheeled me back into the room um, and as soon as I basically got back to the room they just barged in flat out and had a full big halo system there in their hands and said you've broke your neck lay completely still don't move then just bolted this thing on my head straight away like no anesthetic no numbing no nothing it was like Straight away, instant pain. That was more painful than an actual broken neck. And and you're there by yourself at this stage? Yeah, I'm there by myself at this stage. Um, So, yeah, my parents were back here in Australia and then uh, the team was still finishing up the race and the event. So there was nobody around. They just said, we need to stabilise you or you're probably going to end up in a wheelchair. It's like you're you're a hairline fracture away from being in a wheelchair. So it's, uh, yeah, panic stations and... um, Crazy, crazy story. Then, like, uh, all the insurance and stuff that I had in place, they are able to get a, a clause in the contract somewhere to basically opt out of it, get out of the uh, the whole situation and then... Uh,
2: so, so you didn't have medical coverage then in the United States, which nah. is a dangerous, dangerous path to go down. Exactly,
1: and especially in America anyway because uh, it's... Anyone that complains about the medical system here in Australia, like I, I nearly want to yell at them and um, yep. <laughs> shake some sense into them because like, we've got it really quite good here in Australia. And in America, they basically just said if you don't uh, – it's going to cost half a million dollars if you don't – Half come a up, mil? Yep, half a million dollars. And I was like at that stage, I think I was like 20, 22, 23, I think it was. And um, I was like at that age, I don't have that type of money. I'd, even if I sold my house and my car or – I think even at that stage, I didn't even have a house. I had a caravan. I was like, if I sold my caravan and my, my, my car, <laughs> I said, I've got no chance. Like, So they're like, oh, well, sweet, we'll just leave you as that and it'll it'll heal the way that it is, but you're going to be kind of buggered for life. And Jeez. that was it. So it was like, uh, yeah, then I had to get on a plane and fly back home to Australia, like normal of flight. I had to get a business class seat so I could have a bit more room. And uh, flew back into Brisbane with the halo on. Yep, with the halo and everything on, so I looked like Frankenstein coming in. This. Uh... Oh, how was the flight? That was rough. Um, yeah, that was that was <sighs> probably the hardest part. A lot of it, just trying to sit still and not move and be in pain. And um, yeah, it was it was a rough old ride. I actually ended up getting the um the two rods that went up out the back of the uh, the halo system bit. And I got that actually wedged up into the seat of the um, business class seat and I couldn't get out of the seat eventually there. So it was, a, it was a rough one. But then, yeah, I landed in Brisbane uh, Anzac morning. Basically, then I caught a, ca- uh, a taxi. Um, across a taxi with your halo on? With a halo on. So, yeah, all mates look at me quite strange and weird oh, as I well. I he was. <laughs> He's like, what the hell? He, said, he he drove really slow that day. And I'm like, mate, just get me to the hospital. I need to get fixed. So it was... Um, Yeah, went to Brisbane Private Hospital. Uh, Dr. Paul Lucina basically looked at me at about eight o'clock in the morning and then at uh, 11 o'clock in the morning. So a few hours later, I was on the operating table and getting all uh, bolted
2: back together. And what was the conversation? Because this is the gist of what all you guys do. What was the conversation about if you continue down this path with your career, this could happen? Because most of you guys get and girls get to this point at some stage. Yes,
1: for sure. Like that's basically that was my first uh, kind of questions. Like, hey, I want to ride a motorcycle again. I want to race again. Is this possible or anything? And yeah, coming from the doctors in America, they're like, nah, your life's never going to be the same. Blah blah blah. It's going to be completely different for you. To then seeing Paul it was uh, he was like. Looked at all the scans. He said, yeah, yeah, I reckon I can, I'll definitely get you fixed up. And he said, I'll get you back riding a motorcycle, no problem. So I was like, that straight away just changed your mindset that and put me in such a better place. And then um, had the surgery, got everything uh, done. He was super happy with how everything was done. And then, uh, then that was the next question. It was like, all right, sweet, now that I'm fixed, like if I do have that next crash or the next accident, what's the chances? And he said, well... He said, how long's a bit of string? He said, one minute it could be, yeah, you could make one crash and you'll be completely fine and another time it's not going to go your way and it is what it is. He said, yeah, I can't give you that exact answer. He said, it's definitely strong enough to take crashes and be all good. But he said, yeah, you, you land that awkward position like you have done now to put you into this place. He said, mm. it's probably going to happen again. Like it's just if you want to take that risk, the risk is going to be there but you're going to be able to still do what you want to do if you want to go racing. So it was, yeah, definitely reassuring. There's, there was Like I say, there's always a risk no matter what, yes. riding a motorcycle. So it's, uh, yeah, I was like, oh, well, I've taken it now for the last 15, 20 years. So what's what's another attempt at it? So, yeah, it was kind of good, a bit of an, like an inspiring story, I guess, too. Like a lot of people um, get in, and even myself, I get into a little whole and sometimes and just uh yeah it seems like a bit of a, a dark place to be and um yeah able to dig your way out and i think yeah people seeing the story that be able to come back from something so serious it uh yeah you see messages from people going like oh i've read your story and blah 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 and it's it's super inspiring and it gives me hope that like i'll get back to doing the things that i want to do and hmm. so it's 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 cool and it wasn't at that point that I wanted to prove to people or, or do anything. I just knew I still had more pages to fill in, in my book and, then, um, yeah, just wanted to c- continue racing.
2: As much detail as we're going into here with Toby, there's way more detail about all this stuff in his book. It's called Endurance. You need to go and buy it whether you like motorsport or not because, as your understanding, there's a lot more to this fellow than riding a motorbike. Mate, I was lucky as a young man to work on the Formula 1 world tour for nearly four years doing various things and I worked with a cameraman by the name, a French man, a very good-looking French man by the (laughs) name of Jean-Michel Yep. Now, Jean-Michel is a gun cameraman and away from the Formula 1 season, he would go and uh, sit in a helicopter and follow the Paris-Dakar when it was Paris-Dakar through uh, northwestern Africa there Um, and he would come back and I would badger him during the Formula One season, to tell me stories about the Paris Dakar, because it just, you know, I'd look at maps of where it was. So it is, it's something that fascinates me. I, I love travel and I love sport, and it's the ultimate combination. So I, I really want to get into it with you. So I'm going to drive you around the twist here, Toby. But I've got question after question for you about howie. Is, I'm ready for it. So <laughs> well, it, it's it's like it's like a mythical race that it, it, you know, it used to. I used to watch it on. On SBS, I'm sure you were the same with the highlights packages, and there's just these men and women now going through the desert in these unknown locations. And it was like, this is one of the most incredible sporting things I've seen. So, you know, to be a multiple winner, we'll get to, but what's the essence? of this race that's called the Dakar, which doesn't even involve Dakar anymore. You know, you, you've been in Argentina and um, and Salter in those parts of the world and now the Emirates. What What's the essence of what you are doing and is it as wild and as adventurous as I look at it and, and you think, gee, you know, I love everything about the event.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what it is. It's basically an adventure really. Like it just... There's so many unknowns of what can happen in that race. Mm. That's what I think kind of just keeps drawing you back. It's just you get to some of the most remote locations that you will probably never get to see in your life by a normal everyday road car unless you've got a motorcycle or you're in a high-performance race vehicle. It just, yeah, I've seen some pretty special and crazy (laughs) out-of-this-world places that you just think like, doesn't even feel like you're on earth anymore so it's just um yeah going across the salt flats and everything like that in in around Bolivia and like you just you don't put into place it like actually where it really is you you sit there and stop in the middle of it and it's basically just 360 degree view of white it just feels like you're on the moon and then two days later you're going through mountains and and ridges and then you kind of look left and right and the mountain is just like the brightest red of red and then it feels like you're on Mars. Like it just, <laughs> one of them races that I guess, yeah, it's just treacherous. It's difficult, physically demanding on the body. It's it's demanding on the motorcycle and the vehicles and it really tests the actual kind of person you, you are really. So I think that's the, the biggest thing to just get there and push through it and make sure you get to the finish line is a, a challenge in itself not only just even try and go and win um to even just finish the race it's it's a challenge so that's mm-hmm. what i like I, I like to throw myself in the deep end of the pool and uh try and learn to swim really quickly
2: I, I, and when it moved to south america you're talking about those salt flats i this is about you, but I've been lucky enough to to spend a fair bit of time over there. So I've been across that Salta Uni, not on a motorcycle, and I've, I've so when it moved there, I loved it even more because you know you went to Salta. My best mate got married in Salta in northern Argentina, so I, I know the spots now. So yeah, I, I can really relate to it. So you start there in twenty fifteen, you won a stage, you won stage twelve, and you came third um, up in northern Chile. So unbelievable debut. But let's let's base it. Let's base what Dakar's around about 2016, where you won stages two, five, six, eight, and nine. You won the event by over 40 minutes. But let, let's go into that event. So you, you turn up, right? You get there on day one. You've got your motorcycle. How 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 many days do you ride for? I'm going to ask you lots of short, sharp questions. Just yep. so. How long does the event run for?
1: So normally the event goes from like either 12 to 14 days of racing. So it's, yeah, quite basically two weeks of racing.
2: And how, on an average day, what time do you leave camp and what time do you finish? So most mornings
1: it'll be around about 3 o'clock mark where you'd wake up and leave at 4. Maybe you might get a wake-up at 4 and leave at 5, depending on how far the first liaison section is really. So... Yeah, you, you basically are running on minimal
2: sleep. You start quite early in the morning.
1: And what time, So, how long are you on the
2: bike for? What time do you knock off at the end of the day, at the end of the stage? So,
1: then, yeah, the finish times can be anywhere from two, three, four o'clock in the afterno- afternoon. So, you could be on the motorcycle roughly for 12, 13, 14 hours of a day. So, it's wow. really super long days. Like I say, the first liaison section is normally anywhere from like 200 to. 300, 400 kilometres, that's just a transport stage to get to the start of a special stage, which is actually timed. There's a time limit and speed limit in that first liaison, so you can't just go full gas wide open and get there and have an hour and a half or two hours spare. So you've got to run to rules and speed limits and everything like that. Then basically the stage can be anywhere from 300 kilometres to 580, 500, or well, yeah... 600 kilometres and then basically at the end of the day you'll then have another liaison section to get to the bivouac which is what we call our pit area, our main station to kind of get ourselves sorted Um, (laughs) and then yeah basically like I say you'll you'll be on the motorcycle anywhere from yeah 12, 13, 14 hours a day. Righto, let's break a day down.
2: You get up, some bloke taps you on the shoulder. Firstly, where are you sleeping? you're sleeping? You in a caravan? You in a tent? Like, where are you sleeping?
1: Yeah. So luckily, uh, the years I've been going to it, I'm in a little camper van, um, yeah, with a bed and everything. So. Yeah, at three, four o'clock in the morning, guy will come over and knock on the uh, on the door, and I set alarms and everything. But uh, yeah, get up and into it, have some
2: breakfast. Bre- breakfast. So what what's breakfast before you getting on your motorbike for fourteen hours?
1: So breakfast actually normally for me is uh, some wheat bix and some banana and a bit <laughs> of honey and bread. Uh, yeah. So that's about pretty much all all I kind of take in in the morning. So yeah, have a bit of toast and just try and load the stomach up, and then yeah, we're getting ready for the jump on the bike. So you jump on the bike. What's your bike weigh? So the motorcycle is about 170 kilos, fully loaded with fuel, all the race equipment, everything we need. And then basically, uh, yeah, we we start the stage with full tanks and then we have uh, fuel stops along the way that we can top the bike up to where we need to be to do the certain amount of kilometres that we've got ahead of us.
2: Now, this is what people understand. It's not on a racetrack. You've got to think this is like orienteering where you don't only need to get from A to B, you've got to find your way from A to B. So, and I remember having this discussion with you. I'll ask the basic question. You can explain it in detail, Pricey. How the hell do you know where you're going?
1: <laughs> you've got no idea half the time where, you, where you're where going. So, it, it sounds like it's a bit of a fluke, but um, no, so basically in front of us, as people will see on the motorcycle, there's a big, huge, big tower with a, there's a paper road book in there. So, it's basically just like going back in the days, like nowadays, everybody just jumps on their phone and jumps on Google Maps and yep. navigates their way to a, uh, to their destination where they're going. It's kind of like going back to the day of just the old Atlas, the books, and, um, it'll just give us notes at, at a certain kilometer. We need to make a navigation change of either a T junction or off cap piece, which is a piece is like a main road, but off cap, like is, Basically, your north, south, east, west, but it gives us to us in degrees. So, your north is like zero, three, six, sixty degrees, and then your south like is one eighty
2: degrees. So, okay. um, yeah, so your south one eighty degrees. And, so, and th- so this is this is scrolling forward in front of you, yeah. Yeah. So this so is this, on your bike. So this is on
1: the bike. This is what we roll into the into the navigation tower. On the left side of the handlebars on the clutch side, um, underneath uh, where your thumb will kind of sit, there's yep. a little toggle switch um, that you push forward and then the road book will roll through. And if gotcha. you then basically put your thumb on the front, uh, on the back side of it and pull back on it, like with your, with your nail, yep. then yeah, the road book will roll back through if you've gone too far in the road book or if you've made a mistake, you need to go back to a certain spot,
2: recalibrate everything and then start again what what's um so what happens when all of a sudden you're on you're on your road map and you get to a spot where you think you're turning left and there's no left turn you think oh no I'm not in the right spot what happens when you go off track and what's the longest uh, off track experience you've had where you've just been losing time and what's the stress of that like yeah
1: that's um that's the hardest bit of the whole lot of it it's uh yeah your mind just basically explodes to start with then you've got to try and Control yourself and try and calm down a little bit and then start to try and figure out okay, there's meant to be a left turn here, but there's nothing. Where did I start (laughs) to go wrong? Like, and then start, then you start to roll back through the road book and go, I definitely stuck on cap 160 here, and then I followed this road here. It feels like I've done it right. So, and then maybe you might just go a hundred meters more up the road, and then here's your left hand turn. Like, okay. it just sometimes, it, if you maybe just cut a corner a little bit somewhere, it, it like doesn't sound like much, but like twenty or thirty meters, that adds up to a lot in distance. Once, if you cut three or four or five turns, and it's um, so it can get quite flustering and and chaotic for us, which oh, is oh, I bet. Yeah, like once you, the longest uh, like kind of journey I've kind of had, which was uh the kind of this year actually day one was yeah about forty four minute journey I had, and I think the last one that was in in South America in two thousand eighteen I took a navigation wrong um, valley, and I think I went up there for about yeah forty eight minutes. So they're my two main biggest ones and. Honestly, that uh, one in 2018, that probably cost me a win, that one. And then this year's one, yeah, I guess if you took that 44 minutes away mm. from the mistake, I would have been maybe a second or a third again this year. So it's just uh, can change so much. It's not a racetrack that's bunted out. It's not no. marked. There's no flags to say, here, follow this, this flag and then look across. There's another one. You go straight to it. It's it's open desert. So it's like basically just going out into the middle of Australia having a little paper road book and just go all right sweet make your way to Perth and uh, see how you go getting there
2: it's uh, it's funny because the the young generation of listen to this they're like you know, we've got a lot of kids listen, you know, as you say, mum and dad just plug it in the car and off you go. But your generation and my generation, I can recall the family holiday with uh, old Ian and Jean in the front of the car and as soon as we get off track, like the tension in the car would start to go <laughs> up. So I can only imagine what it's like when, I, I'm sure you can relate to that, but when the race is on the line and you're lost, you, and you, you haven't got your, your partner there to give stick to and say, <laughs> you sent me up the wrong track here because it's all up to you, Pricey. Yeah, oh, mate, that, don't worry. That's like I
1: say, living in Nilston when on that uh, that old Atlas and mum and dad in the front of the car, there was definitely some heated moments in the car going <laughs> to some races for sure. But yeah, like I say, that's that's What that's what pretty much what it feels like. You yeah, you've missed one turn and then just like dude just full gas. It's on rev limiter, and um, yeah, you start the panic and what because that at the end of the day, just it's a bit of a different context like just doing a road trip and traveling somewhere but yeah you're like well I just lost 10 minutes there like by <laughs> missing that one left hand turn it's the same thing on the bike it's like yeah, damn you get to the end of the day and you go that just cost me 15 minutes ah oh, there like you just you're super frustrated with yourself but yeah people are back and paces my generation that actually had to read that old atlas they'd understand once you got lost it was a frustrating
2: time. That is the end of Toby Price Part A. Keep motoring to Part B.
0: Listener.